Hey, welcome everyone to Ridiculous Honesty with David McSavage. Bob Geldof, a hero of mine when I was growing up. Full disclosure, a bit of context. Pete Briquette, also known as Paddy Cusack, he's my uncle, and he was the bass player in the Boomtown Rats. And also my cousin, Johnny Fingers, who was Johnny Moylet, he was the piano player in the Boomtown Rats, famously wore pajamas. So Johnny Moylet's mother, Johnny Fingers' mother, that was Sheila Moylet, and Sheila was my grandmother's sister. My grandmother was Peggy. And uh, so so I have I do have a connection uh, in that way with the Boomtown Rats. At the time of the rise of the rats, Paddy, Pete Briquette, was living in our, with us. And I was like 12, 11, 12. Paddy was studying, Pete Briquette was studying to be an architect. And, you know, I remember, I mean, I have vague memories of him, you know, being in a band, you know. And, you know, a little shitty van would pull up outside the house and Paddy'd run out with his bass guitar. And occasionally you'd see Geldof stick his scruffy head out the back of the van. And he was a scary kind of dude to me back then. You know, wiry, sinewy, sort of, you know, uh, with glaring eyes. That's the whole point of rock and roll. But even as a 54-year-old, I'm still a bit intimidated uh, by Bob Gelder. But at that time, in the late 70s, to see a family member, your uncle, in a band, and what chances... What chance does does a band have to actually succeed to get to number one? It's like one in ten thousand. So to follow their trajectory from rags to riches, to see them get on top of the pops for the first time, and to get to number one with Rat Trap, and to knock John Travolta and Olivia Newton John off the top spot, it was fucking amazing. And there was much there was much less stuff going on. There was no internet. There was no Instagram, Facebook, this, that, the, you know. So it was just incredible. So I got an opportunity to interview Bob. But it wasn't, like, it wasn't just in some room. He actually invited me down to his house in Kent. And the man could not have been more hospitable, couldn't have been more friendly. It was such a thrill, honor, privilege to spend time with Bob in his house. I mean, and by the way, this place... It's like, I don't know, Game of Thrones meets Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. It's like this beautiful medieval uh, sort of restored priory. And, um, you know, I did the interview. Then his wife, Jan, cooked us all dinner. We, I sat, was just sitting down eating food with Bob and his wife. It was uh, incredibly special. And, the you know, I didn't ask him... <laughs> hard questions i did, well hard questions i didn't i didn't feel that it was appropriate to talk about the horrible stuff that bob has gone through in his life um the fact that his daughter died of a heroin overdose and the fact that his wife also died in similar circumstances and i didn't want to it just didn't feel you know the man is nice enough to invite me to his home what am i fucking going to do ask him about you know remind him of horrible shit that he he's talked about and probably doesn't want to talk about. One thing I didn't ask him, and I kind of regret, because around the time of Live Aid, Geldof's fame transcended his rock starness, let's say. So he, he kind of achieved this level of fame where he became kind of, you know, 
like fucking, you know, Mandela or fucking Mother Teresa, Bob Geldof, you know, what he achieved, he, he's the whole world sort of gathered together and tried and attempted to intervene in numerous countries and, and stop starvation. It was an incredible moment. And, and I wonder, you know, when I look at Bono, in some ways I think Bono kind of wanted what Geldof had and Geldof kind of wanted what Bono, you know, Geldof wanted to be seen as a rock star. I think Bono wanted to be seen as a savior or something like that. I think that's maybe why they seem to get on so well, continue to be friends. So, you know, enjoy the interview and uh, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Bob Geldof. So I'm here with Bob Geldof, and um, we're going to just have a chat. Um, so, like, Bob. Oh, yeah, we went to the same school, didn't we? We did. And uh, there were people you who... You did very well. I, I, there were people who thrived within that environment yeah. in, in Blackrock College. And yeah. They really... They really I, I couldn't... I didn't get it. I, I, I knew that if I studied, I'd get my exams, and, and I'd, get a, I'd be okay, but I couldn't get my head around looking at the books and actually retaining information, reading stuff. I, you, actually, you have an incredible memory. Where would you get that from? Of stuff that interests me, um, uh, yes. But for but you like Google, to be quite honest. Like I could say something and you could just, like, you know. Yeah, but that's one of those uh, minds that are sort of, you know, essentially full of trivia. And um, uh, it, it needs some thing to hold on to for example with the band obviously we've been through a million experiences that may not normally um be lived through if you're not in a rock and roll band say um and i have sat in rooms with the crew and the band and somebody's been relaying a hilarious story about something and everyone's you know hanging on every word and i'm there hanging on every word and like the guy looks at me and I go, yeah, well, what happened? He says, what are you talking about? What happened? You were there. And, oh, all right. And it's gone. I mean, you know, lots of stuff goes. So it's um, the things that stay with me like anyone else as if there's some idea behind it that's sort of Oh, wait a second. Well, that's now you're being disingenuous because um, we were talking about a gig you did in Cartagena and you started telling me about the history and how Francis Drake went over there and got them to give him... Cartagena, Colombia, yeah, yeah. I, mean, um, I mean, yes, but that's because there's an example of going somewhere extraordinary and beautiful, and I know that many people have been there because it is beautiful, but um, I would never have got there, and the guys would never have got there had we not been in a rock and roll band. Yeah, I guarantee you Paddy wouldn't remember all the stuff that you told me. Well, I would be... Pete the bass yeah, guitarist in... Uh, I would be interested in that sort of stuff more possibly than he would in, in that area yeah. of what we talked about, like yeah. the history of the thing. And and I can visualise... Anyway, it's boring, but yeah. I mean, everyone has got different memories. And with regard to school, um, I was completely useless. Um, and unlike you, 
Uh, I didn't study, and as a result, I didn't get any exams. But sure, I, I didn't study an hour. I, I didn't study. I failed all my exams. Oh, you did? I thought oh, you yeah. said you did quite well. No. Okay. No, no. I'm, I'm just like you, Bob. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know. We're just like a couple of regular <laughs> mates here, you know. We're failures in the um, game of life. But the fact, ladies no, and gentlemen, no, why, why that you, you fail in your leaving cert does not mean you're going to be a failure in the real world. Because uh, Bob Geldof is sitting here in his giant, no, his tiny little apartment. Uh the thing is, there's probably different circumstances why people uh, don't study and therefore don't get exams. But I know for a fact that, I know this sounds, people go, that's ridiculous. But even had I studied, I would not, to your point, I would not have retained the information necessary. And it got to, uh, like, as you get older, or certainly as I get older, uh, your interest in history and sort of stuff, and you start reading more and you get a deeper knowledge of the things that interest you history in school famously is extremely boring for yeah. everyone and i don't know how it's taught now but back in our day it was the dates and you had to learn them off by rote but i had no understanding of the significance of what i was being told so it's very like google you can get a lot of information but very little knowledge yeah and were you I, in, were you in and out of trouble all the time in school i was in i was in in i was in trouble <laughs> most of the time and what, what yeah like because i r r fifth year and sixth year i would smoke i was smoking hash all the time mm. and i'd go to there was a place called the jet foil and i'd, and I'd go there and, and buy hash i'd steal money i'd steal money from my mother's purse god forgive me i did tell her that when i was in aa you know you go the fourth step but anyway, I, I bought. I used to buy hash, and you—you you you never really got beyond four. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> the higher power thing was a bit of a problem. <laughs> but uh, you used to smoke hash, didn't you? No, I never smoked it. I ate it. Well, now I actually read your book. Is that it? Mm. When I was nineteen or mm. twenty, I really enjoyed the book, and I didn't read many books. And you talked about, as far as I remember, and it helped me at the time because I was going through the same thing. So mm. I was smoking hash and I got all these panic attacks mm. and my heart was beating too fast and I thought I was going to die. And eventually that's what made me stop smoking. Yeah. Uh, but you said that you, you went through a similar experience. Uh, well, but you ate it. I thought you smoked it. No, no I ate it. Uh, I had asthma um, when I was, you know, in my teens, which was handy because it got me out of rugby, which was compulsory in our school. That's right. Um, and... Um, uh, but subsequently I was living in a squat in London and um, one of the Saturday nights, uh, a lot of the guys in the squat were uh, tripping on acid. But me and uh, a, a guy called Paul Rooney, who'd also been in our school, who later went on to head the civil service in Birmingham, he uh, and I were sitting there, we were playing drafts uh, in, in uh, the kitchen, which smelt of... Uh, leaking gas and dog piss and um, we I, I don't know how much we had but we we broke we sliced it in half and uh, I ate half and he ate half and we were we made a big feed of spaghetti and um, we were sitting on you know op opposite each other at the formica table and uh, you know I was waiting for Rooney to move on the draft board and like I looked up at him and he was just staring at me um, and huge tears, big tears oh. started just welling out of his eyes. I can't say he was weeping or crying. They just welled out. 
And I freaked out as it kicked in with me. I thought, shit. And uh, so rational Bob says, hold on, don't panic now. Um, This is a sedative, this drug. So if you can get it through your system quickly, you will go to sleep and hopefully everything will be okay. So with that in mind, clearly insane, I lashed down the stairs uh, out onto uh, Lady Margaret's Road in Tufnell Park and went running as fast as I could around the block. A bit, It's a big block. And I ran and I ran as fast as I could and my heart was pounding. Of course, all that this did was push a sort of undiluted fucking dose into my brain. And as I ran around about five or six times trying to get this thing through my system, uh, I began to hallucinate, properly hallucinate. And so that, you know, that people listening, I'm sure, have been through whether they're, you know, stoned or doing something where you separate, where um, you fly over yourself, you look at yourself and uh, or you're drunk and you think there's a part of you that is sober and you're going, get yourself together and Jesus, just walk straight. All that's happening. Um, so I got back into the yard of the squad and I was panting against the brick wall from the exertion and my head fell against something cold sticking out from the brick wall and and I turned to look at it and it was a nail sticking out the pointy end rusted sticking out from the brick wall and it was so inviting so lusciously cool and I put the center of my forehead right up against the point of the rusty nail and I just wanted to invade and inhabit the white hot space that was my brain at that moment and it made awful a lot of sense that this iceberg should cool me down and I put my hand at the back of my head to push my forehead into the nail at which point Brian Carroll uh, another guy from our school tripping grabbed me and said what the fuck are you doing and and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, man, like, you know, and I was m- further gone than him. And I was frightened now. I looked at what I'd done and, you know, could uh, sort of double take and went up the horrible stairs and uh, collapsed on my bed. But before I did, I tuned my transistor to white noise. You know, and that was deeply calming just the nothingness of, of it. And I fell asleep with the white noise just pressed, pressed to the pillow in my ear. And next day I woke up and was completely paranoid. And I had to go to Sean Finnegan's house in Hearn Hill for Sunday lunch with his mother. Sean Finnegan? Sean Finnegan was uh, a guy who uh, was a friend. I think he'd been in in the same school for about a year, certainly in the junior school, and was a friend of some of us. He was English, but obviously Sean Finnegan's parents were Irish, and he looked like a human prawn. He was very small, (laughs) he was bright florid red face, skinny, and a shock of red hair. And his bedroom in his house was covered in El Cordobese um, posters. El Cordobese was the George Best of bullfighting. He was very beautiful, like George Best in the 60s. Major international star. So, because a lot of people would would go to Spain. Finnegan wanted to be a bullfighter. Okay. The fact that he was like... 
two for three. And, you know, he certainly wouldn't have needed a red cape because he was so fucking red of face right, and right. hair. He could have just stood in front of the bull. Anyway, the ambition was to be a bullfighter. So I get on the tube uh, Tufnell Park to go over to Finnegan's. It's a long way, if you know your London, from Tufnell Park to Herne Hill. And I had to get out at every single station to breathe and get myself together. And I was really tr- trembling, trembling and shaking and all sorts of horrible so, so, things. So is it? So you're saying you have to get out at every station. Is it that where, where that sort of panic where you think you're going to die? Yeah. Kind of panic. And so you're... I possibly thought I was going to die. I just needed to... Get air. My missus has it, you know. She's never smoked in her life, but she's got claustrophobia. So I, I don't. I think it's different to claustrophobia. I get to Finnegan's, and we're very. I'm very late, and it's a very prosaic Sunday lunch, and Finnegan's glaring at me, and Mrs. Finnegan, who has a sort of helmet as a haircut, you know, and she's saying, "You're very late, Geldof." Everyone called me Geldof. And I said, yes, sorry, Mrs. Finnegan, mumbling away. And Finnegan's kicking me under the table. You know? <laughs> and uh, she said, so, Geldof, what have you been up to, Chirpy? You know? And I said, not much. You know? <laughs> and and uh, this went on. And I had to get out. London was just... At some point, someone gives you a golden key to London. But what you have to get through to get that key is very hard indeed. It's so huge and so lonely a town, like you're anonymous amongst the anything from the 12 to 20 million at any one point. And um, uh, back then, no one had any money. Um, but, you know, once you get used to it, and this whole cornucopia opens up in front of you it is the most exciting place uh, for me still and uh, you know Shelley was great about it Wordsworth was great and Ray Davies was great about Mm. it you know great songs about it and I, I love it it's very exciting but at that point it was just too much and too 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 huge so me and Finnegan busked the cinema cues, you know, I learned off, well, I knew loads of songs, but I learned off three busking type songs and Finnegan would bottle. How long did you busk for? Oof, I was selling hot dogs, you know, you know, the guys who push the hot dog trolleys mm. on the West End. I don't know if they do it still. Mm. Um, and that was a bit iffy because there were huge wars between the Italian families who controlled the ice cream, who controlled the hot dogs. Oh yeah, and you'd get your hot dogs in a in a warehouse every night. to be, and you had to boil the water of the trolley, and you had to get a, f- a fresh towel because the cops, if they stopped you and they wanted to get you, they'd look at the towel and say it's dirty. You're coming with us. So then I I was Shaftesbury Avenue, and. Uh, uh, you know, I'd be selling my hot dogs and it was very depressing, really. Um, occasionally, I'd want to get caught. Usually, the cops would come along and you saw them and you moved. That's all they wanted. If you didn't move, they'd stop you and say, you know, where's your permit? I, you, you didn't have any. They knew that. And they'd start looking for health and hygiene and I'd be carted off to Vine Street Station, which sometimes I chose to be it was a break from the squat or whatever Jesus. Crap place. so um, but how long w- did you busk for 
I mean, was it? I'm trying three, to think. Oh, it made it. Was it a year, two years, three no, months? No, 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 not that long. It was like a, it was like maybe a summer. Yeah. And, and what were they, what can you remember? I I I used to sing I used to sing Dylan song a song a Dylan song. I probably I did Dylan one because especially something like Stuck Inside a Mobile with the Memphis Blues again because it goes on forever. Yeah. Um, but the one that was a winner was was um, San Francisco Bay Blues by Jesse Fuller because you could just keep repeating it. That's right. You see, the people don't understand uh, when you're busking, you have uh, people walking by you all the yeah. time. So by the time you end the song, you, you have a whole new group. So you, there was a, there's actually a guy in the London Underground who who is known... Uh, among other buskers, as knock knock knocking, because all he's singing, <laughs> all he sings is knocking on heaven's yeah, but door. That's classic. No, but but I'll tell you, you, you go out of your fucking mind if you if you sing these songs too too often. Well, I'd do a cue, you see. I wouldn't stay still because other people had their I can't remember what's called their spot. Yeah. And it was all self-regulated. But if you suddenly landed on someone's spot and it was their turn at 7 p.m. but you didn't know that mm. you know there'd be fights big yeah. fights so we do a cinema queue and i'd start the uh, i'd start at the top you know and then wander down as the cinema queue moved as well wander down and so as not to get in trouble right next cinema queue but you had to be yeah. quick because all this all the movies start at the same yeah. time then you had to wait till the movies are over then as they came out you bust again so Finnegan bottled he had the yeah. hat yeah and uh, but you know listen uh, you, you you can make a little bit of cash doing that well we made enough to get to uh, Bilbao so we uh, again we, we went we I went I taught, taught English near Bilbao yeah so that was that was the plan did really. you do that did you teach English yeah so that was the next gig. So I had was getting out, and the plan was my sister was in Madrid. So I thought I'd pitch up at her place and try and get a gig. I just needed to get out of this. I was going nowhere. In fact, I was going down, and the city was caving. In you see, you see, can I, can I can I just tell you though that like you you the fact that you had the wherewithal to get yourself, or maybe that experience frightened the shit out of you. Mm. What you described about almost. Well, self harm. I don't know yeah. how serious you're going to take it, but but you do. You you seem to have like a uh, like the fact that you would take yourself out of that situation. You were striving for something. I mean, I, I don't think a lot. But of, there's no. But that that's a function of my background. The your dad and your mom work ethic and all that kind no, of. No, because my mom died very young. Yeah, when you um, were seven. Yeah, and my dad was away every every week he was away so he was yeah. home on Saturday and Sunday and then gone on Monday to Friday but you I assume you learned you saw how hard he worked no you, I you, didn't oh, but I mean you knew that he was working yeah but you know eight or nine you don't give a crap you know but don't you you know don't you absorb no he that? was away I didn't see anything like you, you know but you do have a good work ethic don't you but I'm but that's because it's kind of there's you know people say very driven no panic <laughs> you know uh, it's a completely different um uh, animus and uh no so you don't see that and so you you, you know several things happen so you don't see that you, you don't see he's him working he's just not there but bob i, I didn't see my dad working but well, I no one see, does actually no, yeah but i mean i saw him going to work and coming back and i saw him and he'd get dressed and wear a suit and i did i guess being around somebody who has that work ethic or works hard it does you do absorb it no it's, you know no no, not in my case. I mean, so what's happened was different to yours. You you had a mom and dad there. Okay, so you're very young. And the polar axis 
of your life, by definition, is the presence of your parents. You are circumscribed by all of where they allow you to go to. All authority is vested in them. Lesser are the priests in school and the police at a distance, far less than your parents, the ultimate arbiters of what is and what will be. In my case, that simply wasn't there at all. So, you know, one, what is authority? It's literally, it was meaningless to me. I didn't understand it. So I got into serious trouble when a priest would say or a teacher would say, I'd be going, why? Like in my head, you know, what the fuck's that? Uh, and later, you know, when a cop came over and said, I'm telling you, you young pup, you know, you just got fuck off, bang. You know, so that's what happened. I didn't understand it's still a problem. Like, I know I know it, and I, when I encounter it, when I'm meeting some uh, important person, superficially or otherwise, I'm in my head going, <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, like, I'm not aware of that. But that's, and it is a problem because it's pathetic. Well, uh, sorry, it, it is so not pathetic. It's definitely a superpower because... To, in my head, and it explains because I was thinking about that. I remember the time when t when you sort of uh, approached Thatcher, and you said to her uh, about the I think it was Butter Mountain or something. Mm -hmm. It was it was around the time of Live Aid. But I'd never seen anybody talk and confront a leader, especially Thatcher. Mm -hmm. And I think at the time people people were kind of thinking, Jesus, can you even do that? Mm -hmm. What is he doing? And I thought. And I've been in situations where, you know, and I, I, my body's full of adrenaline, scared. How, so you've got a big pair of balls. But from your explanation is you just, that, that gene where you, you see the authority figure, you, you don't, it, it doesn't really threaten you or you're not worried. Or were you, were you scared at that time or, or nervous when you approached Thatcher in that way? No, I wasn't because... Um but most people. But would I knew be. my subject at that point, okay. and I knew what I needed from her, and uh, it was a chance to engage with the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, who can move the needle. So I wasn't going to blow it, and um, uh, it, it happened by kind of by chance. But afterwards, because I had argued with her, and. I, of course, been media hit, but then so is she because she's a politician. I am because I'm a pop singer. I knew the cameras were going to go off, so I, I I finished the argument with some. I said, "No, Prime Minister, there's nothing as simple as dying," and she just gave me the gimlet, cyclopean air, uh, yeah. eye. You know, like what's it stared at me with those stunning, actually ice blue eyes. Then at the lunch. I had my back to her on the next table and she leant over and tapped me on the sofa. She said, come and see me, Mr. Geldof. And I did. Right. And so that was the end. Okay. And, um, but you have a big pair of, I mean, without, you know, you no, know big no, pair of balls. I, I mean, I'm sorry, but you do. Like, I, I don't think many people within that situation would have been able to do that or keep their cool. And, and you know, Anyway, it was it was very very impressive. Um, well, I, I mean, I've been in, I, I've been in a situation where where, where where I didn't pay my fucking license fee and I'm sta TV license and I'm standing outside the forecourts and there are all these press around me and Bob, I, I was shaking. I mean, you mightn't have been able to see it, but I was like very very fucking nervous. 
Um, I mean, you ever ever actually get... You shouldn't be in front of the press. What? You shouldn't be nervous in front of the press. Yeah, but there's a difference between... That's a performance. Yeah, well... Standing in front of the judge is a different thing. Yeah, but this, 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 this... I was out of my comfort zone. Normally, I'm standing on a stage, you know, but this was something different, and I'd never been in this situation. This is kind of the real world with the press and the photographers. But do you, do you, have you, do you get nervous? Do you get where, where you, where you? Yeah, of course. But well, I mean, not going on stage. I mean, everyone says, oh, yes, I'm panicked. If you're not, you've lost it. That's nonsense. I mean, you know, um, I'm excited about doing my job and I'm yeah. doing my job. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah. And I'm at my most Bob when I'm on that stage. That's where, uh, this, this, I'd uh, probably like you. That's where, you know, you have a license to, you particularly have a license to let the demons fly, mm. you know, on stage. Whereas at home, they're just noodling around in your in your thing, you know. Uh, you know, there's there's a rat song where I wrote, um, "Home is where the head is. Home is where the demons all come out to play." And you know, for you, it's on the stage. For me, Bobby Boomtown, you know, is an essential part of me that I hadn't quite understood was. And you can come out and, you know, if I, when I see myself, I have to turn off. When I hear myself, I'm so embarrassed, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, like... Wait, sorry, wait, wait, you mean when you see yourself performing? Yeah, you know, and like, you know, can't stand it. Right. And um, I can't stand, like, hearing myself. I'd rush in and go snap off the television and stuff like that. But, but do you not you know you know do you not listen back to try and you know improve or tweak stuff to just to, no, to listen to the no. I have to obviously I listen endlessly to the tracks until I think they're right right you know? yeah yeah and uh, you know um, I work after so many years uh, my partner in all of this is is Pete Briquette, your your uncle and uh, and we've but just you, got this you know absolute understanding of each other's very completely very personalities where he knows perfectly well you know my tolerances and and I know yeah. his so that that's fine now but um uh again I go back to the formative period so if there's no one there to tell you what to do for a start if you have to eat and if people outside of Ireland are listening to this it's cold it's drizzly it's you know, and you go back to a, a, it is. A, it's a, so true. It that's all it does. It rains, and there's boredom. There's the word boredom, and then there's rural Irish boredom. It's on a different level. You're right, and 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 I assume that that was. I mean, well, we weren't rural. We were no. Superb. I know you weren't. I know we weren't rural, or you weren't rural. But I mean, I guess it it was. But boring. it wasn't the the boredom was just part of. Yeah. existence mm. um but when you have to go back and get the coal from the the coal hole and make the fire and it's fucking freezing and then what to make your your tea uh, etc and then there's nothing to do uh, no one to make you do your homework. oh yeah can we just uh, just just quickly so food back then i think well what, what we yeah you see i remember food was well, like we a don't punishment. want to go into a nostalgia no 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 we're, we're not going to well, nostalgia. I made, i'm totally I made shy. stuff that was simple i made rice uh i put um an oxo cube in it i think uh, and i uh and i put a you know some bacon rashers and i'd chop them up and throw them in and i'd just make it up maybe so you learned a, how to cook fairly young i, I mean 
the basics. My dad was yeah. a great cook. Uh, he was a chef, in fact, before he did this other thing, a very good chef. So, um, so I, sorry, Bob. I don't. I know. I know. I don't want to. So you you were saying, you know, that that sort of independent streak, so that self reliance. That that that's it. You learn. There's two good things you learn: uh, independence and organization. Rapid, really quickly, or else what? And then, but the downside is. Because you're largely on my own, on your own. I have two sisters. One was the school, the family SWAT. She stayed in, and and uh, the nuns, you know, sort of took care of her. And uh, then my eldest sister, who uh, got out fairly quick, she didn't want quite rightly to be a surrogate mother, so she married the local uh, copper, who was a good guy. And um, uh, so, is it fair to say almost as you're saying that it's almost like people are too overbearing with their kids and they, they sort of take away their, that, uh, uh, you know, by it, them it being authoritative over kids, they take the kids' authority away and they don't have maybe the confidence that some... It was, it no. was crap. What, it was, what's it, crap? It, it, the whole thing was crap. Honestly, what, it was horrible. What, with it, your situation? Period, yeah, that situation. I mean, you do, you're with, you go to your but, but like you said, you know, you get the golden key. Did Maybe you had to go through that crap to get the kind of personality well, you I'd, have I'd, that requires... I'd have chosen not to because you end up Odd, you know, <laughs> you know. I mean, you, you, you know. Do you think? Do you think a that's permanent the... sense of? Um, there's something empty somewhere. That's all I know. You know. I, I, I think. I, well, I think everybody feels that that's it's good. not unique to you, and I think that um, people are, are are very scared of that emptiness. They're always trying to distract themselves from it. Well, they're always trying, either they're trying to be nice and say, oh, Bob, it's a God-shaped hole. You've got to know <laughs> Yeah, it's a God-shaped hole. You know, no, it's God's landing you know, strip. You know. And it's... it's <laughs> um, so... So you went to Madrid. No, to, so, to, to, like, so what oh, I did oh, yeah. was I listened to Radio Luxembourg and I read books because there was no money for... There was no telly. We didn't have money. There was no fridge. There was no phone. So, you know, I listened to the the one rock and roll station and i listened to uh, and i and i read books that was it mm. now out of that you conjure up a life some life and it takes you a good while of you know trying to find some job something something that means something to you so now we hitchhike to southampton we buy our ticket on the ferry you and finnegan yeah and uh, there's truck drivers, and I asked them where they're going, and could they give us a lift to Madrid? So that was relatively easy. We get off at Bilbao, and uh, one of them allowed us to hop up, and we got to Madrid pretty quick. Saw my sister. She said she could probably get us a job in a language school in a place called Murcia, which now is a, a Ryanair destination, but then was just this dusty... Um, really sort of desert town really where uh, and still in Franco's Spain you and know? is that is that down the south east near Alicante they were just making the spaghetti westerns when we showed oh, right. up you know? I have to say the Andalusian women are stunning no there's not Andalusia yet oh you know um, so that that's a further south you know so did yeah. you did you get a Spanish girlfriend? No, I got an American girlfriend with, with a surname who was uh, one of the most famous surnames in American history, and she gave me the clap. Did you get uh, what? What's the fucking clap anyway? What is that like? VD? No, what is that? Yeah, 
Shit. You're so naive. No, no, the clap, yeah. No, I, it, the, it was um, gonorrhea. Gonorrhea. Oh, yeah, just, yeah. That's pretty nasty. And what, you get antibiotics and you just, you, yeah. you, you grow. Yeah. How would she have got that? She would have had sex with other people. Jesus. It's like polio. It's like polio. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, the, yeah. I lost my virginity at 24. We don't need to know when you did. But um, yeah, I, I was very fucking late, Bob. Yeah, but you're ugly. Yeah, yes. That is so hurtful, mate. Mm-hmm. Actually, you are quite um, handsome, aren't you? I mean, you know, obviously you're getting older, but like, do you not get older? Do you not, like, what's it like? I mean, how are you with getting older? I'm fine with getting older. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, I, do, I don't like it uh, too much because the kind of women I want to have sex with definitely don't want to have sex with me because I'm 53 and they're, you know, in their... 30s yeah tinder yeah i've done the tinder i'm on the tinder thing at the moment it's not really working for me i'm not yet yeah, like the, like i say you know i'm not that i'm not i'm not i'm not a catch tinder Fit. is the night <laughs> tinder <laughs> is the night but um would you you wouldn't have been confident around w- women when uh, you were absolutely awful around yeah. women um you know you get into a rock and roll band and bang uh, and and suddenly uh, suddenly was it? Was it literally? Did you? Did you? Was quite there a, literally, the first gig. Quite literally. <laughs> and you're thinking, this is literally the literally. We keep on saying literally. This is the best thing ever. Well, so the choice was. I was trying to, I was trying to get um, uh, a paper, a free ads paper. So an offline eBay, if you like, to put it into sort of contemporary. Is mode. this with the boomtown? It was called buy and sell. Right. And I was trying to get this off the ground. And, You're trying uh, to get a rock and roll band off the ground. No, trying to get buy and sell off the ground. Uh-huh. And the rock and roll band was a sort of, you know, to keep, it was a distraction really, but I was so bored doing this thing, trying to get a business going in okay, Ireland. Sorry, you can forget yeah. it, you know. Yeah. So um, uh, we had our first gig in Bolton Street or Kevin Street, I don't know which one, I can't remember. Uh, Halloween night. What year was that, 75? 75. And... Uh, you know, there was maybe 30 people, maybe more, I don't know, 30. And we were just playing on the teacher's dais platform. And we took a break because we didn't know how long you were meant to play, really. I think we'd learned off like three hours worth of stuff or something. And we took a break halfway through, you know. And uh, at which point a girl, a pretty girl walked over and she just said, I want to screw you. <laughs> no, she didn't. Yeah, like now, this is Ireland. This is I can't seriously be- Catholic Ireland, 1970s. Yeah. And I'd read about this stuff in England, you know, like um, uh, in the Penthouse magazine or something, you know. But was I she did, Irish? I didn't actually believe it that girls just came over. Was she you. Irish though? She was, yeah. Was she drunk? No. She's like, thanks very much, McSavage. No, <laughs> but I mean, was she drunk? Like, No, just to give her the confidence to approach you. But she, she was She something. just was... Right up, you know, right up to my face. I was going out with someone then, uh, too. So um, I fell into the whole rock and roll thing. So my choice. Can I just say congratulations? That's like winning an Oscar. Yeah, well, Actually, you know. Uh, well, so so the immediate thing is, hold on, career move. <laughs> uh, boring, buy and sell free ass paper or shagging drugs, <laughs> stadiums, you know. Let me think about that. Let me this. think about that. Um, John McDonough described sex as fame for normal people. And I love it because when you do finally get the woman or man of your dreams and you're, you know, 
in in the bedroom or whatever, and you're taking your clothes off for the first time, that sense of well achievement or connection or the excitement of it. You get it is like to, winning an award. Yeah, I mean, get, what? Obviously, you've only been shagged twice, but I mean... <laughs> yeah, listen, you know, obviously I'm not a rock star <laughs> like you. Uh, but um, but it, 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 is, it, it is an incredible uh, life-affirming experience to, to, to have a woman to come up and say, I want to screw you, I want to shag is, you. It absolutely, like to this day, it's vivid. <laughs> And, uh, you know, um, obviously it happens to me all the time. Of now, course you know, it does. It's tiresome. Well, I tell yeah. you, I'm, I'm sure it does, because I remember one time looking at you at the on, on the late later, you were talking about something, and then I thought, geez, it must be amazing being Bob Geldof, you know, like, because you'd have women coming up to you all the time. Well, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, no, you don't, but, I mean, you have a, you have a good shot at it, but... Uh, you know, okay, if you were if you were single, that, if you were single, that, yeah, up you know, to that point yeah. before being in a band, it's the weirdest thing. Up to that point, it was a struggle. It's you know, it's deeply conservative still. Uh, Ireland, nineteen seventies, you know, drowning in in the Catholic Church, and uh, you know, and like any young kid, you know, I had to be half legless to. And I never ask girls to dance, never, because of the rejection. Because they'd say, ask me, sister, I'm sweating, you know, that thing. Mm-hmm. And, like, we went to Stella House, and I had my brother-in-law's cop clothes, which were very cool, the old Irish cop clothes. And I'd, I'd, I'd ask my auntie to take them in to waste the big, you know, the dark blue, you know, with the big collar, you know, those coats they had. And I'd ask her to waste them. And I'd bring in his big serge trousers and make flares of them, you know, and stuff like that. So I made them up. And so I thought I looked absolutely cool. Probably looked a complete twat. But um, I'd loaf against the uh, pillars at the back of Stella House Ballroom. And I just leaned there. And... um, uh, Johnny Finger's brother, Pat Moylet, he has a brass neck, if that expression still holds. What's it? I mean, he wasn't... He wasn't good-looking. I mean, you know, he, was, he had glasses, he was older. He was uh, kind of... He wasn't... He was, he was kind of had a, he had something going on, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, he, he, yeah. he had a fantastic personality. Do you not think I'm... He, he was I, I'm not ugly, Bob. I'm, I'm not, like, good-looking, but no, I'm but, somewhere... Pat didn't give a crap. He'd just yeah. go w- wandering down where all the girls were sitting along the wall and say, would you like to dance? Would you like to dance? And like, you know, get up. And I would be fucking petrified. immobile with yeah. fear. And in the summer, and I don't know if this is true now, uh, it used to really annoy us. All the Spanish and French kids would come over because their parents would send them to a good Catholic country for the summer where they'd be safe. But they were so much better looking than fucking us, you know. Mm. And they had, you know, the cool Lacoste things and, you know, sort of straight leg trousers and those oxblood loafers with the little tassels on them. I wanted to punch them, you know. But the girls were on whole other levels of beauty, you know. They were exotic. But one night... They just had good skin. One night. Why did I say? Why did I sound angry when I said that? Sorry. Yeah. One night. Uh, there was this little pocket bardot in the in the house, and Pat. We all. Uh, every man was just a boy was just looking at her, and she was seriously uh, something truly beautiful. Yeah, yeah I know. And, do you, so, you know? So, sometimes you look at a woman and they're really beautiful, and you think to yourself, "She's maybe God does exist." 
Sorry, go on. It's a bit cliche, but we go on. Yeah. No, I know it is. It is a complete, complete cliche. Well, I was uh, just trying anyway, to so go on. So this pocket bar, though. Yeah. And I know and what you mean. And, and, and it's almost like, isn't it? Doesn't it play back to that? You know, when you're in Ireland for so long, and then you you, you see you go to London, and you think. And you thought the women you knew in Ireland were beautiful. And then you go to London and you think, oh, Jesus, I didn't think actually women could be that beautiful. Look at this. So this little pocket bar, though, I'd say all the Irish women were hating her. Well, I don't think they pay much attention. They were after the, the, the boys. OK. Who were much better looking than us. Right. You know, I mean, really seriously. I mean, you know, mm. I was horrible looking, you know. So, uh, um, you know, but anyway... There was a dude in school called Paul McCormick who was sort of cool, and he used to. He had a long, you know, those university scarves that you'd mm. see on Paul's, uh, you know, Simon and Garfunkel covers, you know, yeah. like you know. And McCormick would have this scarf which he hung down to his knees, and he'd ha- grab the ends, and he'd be doing his moves holding the ends. Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah, like, brilliant. And uh, so he got he, you know, he was doing great. Uh, another guy, you know, and uh, but Pat just went along straight zoned in. To the little pocket bar, yeah. And she said, "Like, I mean, no, c'est impossible. You know, you are so ugly, or something. Uh-huh. You know." And so what's so Pat came back, and he goes, and so the next dance said, "Will you dance with me?" Like, kept going, no, and she kept saying no, and eventually she just Relented. had to give in. And what's it? You know, that night he shagged her. Like, fuck off. Yeah, no, seriously. I mean, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but he, that's what I mean. But but that's what I mean. The wonderful interplay between men and women. And by the way. You know, as much, you know, uh, like women want sex as much as men want sex. But when, when it finally... That, that, that's what you're praying for. <laughs> that's what you're praying this for. Is, this yeah. is getting very sad. If, if you could see his little face <laughs> almost pleading. <laughs> but it is so exciting. Like, I'm just thinking of that. And he goes again and he go, and he got defeated. I mean, and, but he, and he goes back, back. And none of us care. We're going, give it a break. Will you? And, he's, and he, he's laughing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I couldn't do that. No. I felt no, humiliated. I no way could I so, do that. So, you know, like, you know, and I was only when I was... So certain, like I, they kept looking. They or kept drunk, looking. yeah, or drunk. Yeah, and then what's it? You know, uh, I, I go for it a couple of times. You know, um, but the girls were great. The ones we knew, and you know, some of them ended up in the early songs. Mm. Uh, there was, you know, there was a great coffee bar in Dunleary in the basement, and some really uh, girls. I'm still friendly with who come down. They they were beautiful too, you know. So, um, but I did, you know, I I really didn't do well well bob um you know that, that to me because paddy was in your band yeah and so we followed the you know the the uh trajectory, trajectory and it seemed very quickly you got a number one mm. uh single in the british charts yeah. which was rat trap and uh, it was incredible it was an incredible time incredible time for us uh, to witness and it was very, and, and there was nothing really going on. Like you were the first real band to break it in the. I think Thin Lizzy was before you, was it? Yeah, yeah. And and it, so so it was huge. And that that moment when you, um, I think I think you who did you knock off the top? Olivia Newton John and John Travolta. John Travolta, and you ripped up the thing. It was just like Ireland. It was like you know goal or something. Um, it was incredible, and. You know, there's that level of fame, okay, and then you had another number one. But then the level of fame when you when the Live Aid thing came along, and 
like I remember, like I'd go to my mate's house and, and his mother was very religious and she had a picture of Mother Teresa. And on that day, there was Mother Teresa and Bob Geldof. Yeah. Like, so, so this, there, there's fame and then there's, and then there's, you, you reach this level where it's kind of, you know, almost you become an institution or something. So and it must we, have been, we, it must have been a, quite a ride. Yeah. And, you, you know, it's, it's a problem, um, that type of fame. So uh, Bob just handed me a uh, framed photo of uh, Bob sitting next to Mother Teresa. Um, the, the two of us pissing ourselves laughing. Now, Christopher Hitchens gave her a hard time. Did you ever read anything that he said yeah, about her? Yeah, I mean, what uh, did you, what did I, you? I've, I've got his great book, which everyone should actually read, called Arguably, which is like a book of his essays. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's a polemicist. And, uh, you know, it was very much um, not his thing. Um, but uh, I thought she was great. And I thought the work that um, they did, or her crowd did, was fantastic. And I saw her just in the background of that picture. See that guy? Yeah. He's, a, he's a, an Ethiopian government official, a Marxist. And they were wary of Teresa because of her global fame. And... Just after that picture was taken, um, they were sur they were around. That's at the airport, and uh, they were sorry. Where where Addis Ababa? Okay, and they were they were all there. And she said, um, in she spoke with a sort of uh, Southern European uh, English accent, haltingly, and she said, "There's a palace down the road that's empty. How long has it been empty for?" And she said, "The guy said, oh, I don't know, like you know, since the revolution." And she said, "Well, it should be used, and we can use it. You know, um, you know, when can I see you so that what's it? We can open this palace, and I can use it for, you know, my people. You know, and like you know, it's totally media hip. She's at an airport. It's Mother Teresa, surrounded by cameras." She nails this, you know, stern mm. Marxist Ethiopian government official, demands a palace in a way that allows him to go, oh, well, I'll look into it. And she goes, no, but when can we, you know, do it? And just in front, and he's confounded and can't do much. And uh, she ends up getting this place to use for the poor. You know, you're not going to get any argument from me about how cool she is. Right. Um, that that particular time, that uh, image that was used by Richard Burke, I think. Uh, yeah. Burke. Are we talking about the famine? The famine. Mm. Um, there's nothing worse in my mind. Like seeing a child suffer, that's it, game over. We have to do whatever we can. But it, there, there was there was an incredible moment back then where it, it, it's like the whole world just stopped and, and, and mobilized or something. Did, well, it, it did, did. It did, yeah. I mean, it actually did mobilise. That's yeah. what, that's weird, but it's just as weird for me, you know. I mean, you you go for it, and yeah. So so yeah. So it's, it's the, very it's amazing just to be sitting here talking to you. To be quite honest, Bob, because it's still it's like where were you when certain things happened, and, and Live Aid was definitely one of those. Uh, for, yeah, no, for I most understand people. that. I mean, the thing that um, you know, it, the difference for me is that. Um, I was on this organisational continuum. You know, I was panicking that none of this would work, that um, nobody would show up. I know that's ludicrous, but, like, we didn't have contracts with anyone. 
uh, that the technology would fade. And so underlying all of that, there's there's the fears of, um, there's three fears really. One is the immense personal failure, the fact that you actually fail to do it. And then so publicly, so humiliatingly, um, that was a great fear. Um, You're talking about the concert itself. The whole thing, the yeah, whole yeah. Thing. And then there was the fear of letting down the guys who had, you know, the, 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 the bands and the individuals who really did a lot to be there and to play for free. Really did a lot. Eric Clapton gave up three gigs in Las Vegas and flew to Philadelphia. I didn't ask him. Mm. He just did. Mm. And uh, so to contextualise that, uh, that's serious serious amounts of money and no problem you know just pitched up how many songs which so, so i think so, but, so, but, so, so that's just one guy but that's one guy but that shows you the atmosphere at that time i just those images it it didn't make sense to us the, it looked like a biblical famine it looked like a famine well, that's what burke described that's it i think that's what he did describe it as and it but it just shows you that if whatever is ailing this world if if we really are serious, mm. if um, it, it can be done, so I, I wonder what, what was I mean, it. The, what, what was it the focus? Was it, sorry, oh, what yeah. you're talking about is um, a time when it was possible for um, compromise, consensus, and cooperation, and literally that's not there. So, you know, let me just finish the point about the fears I had. So the personal failure, the failure of letting down the people who I'd asked to come to this electronic hearth around who, where, which everybody could gather. And finally, and most importantly, uh, failing those in whose name we were doing it. And they really were insuperable fears, like sleepless fears. And so I was on this thing and everyone goes, yeah, amazing. And it was only when I walked on the stage with the rats, the band I'm in, my mates, that I could be a pop singer again. This is my gig. This, this is, oh yeah, God, this is cool. This is what I normally do. I don't have to be afraid here, in though it, even though it's in front of billions. I don't have to be afraid here. I can do this. This is easy. And here's a little thing, which I've said before, but just for your vibes. Just before I went on stage, my back was killing me because I hadn't been sleeping. And David Bowie was massaging me, <laughs> as you do. So and so Sonny said, come on, we're on. I think Gary said it. And I said, oh, yeah, OK. And I got up off the flight case where Bowie had been. Well, so know. wait a second, just, just talk me through that. While David Bowie was massaging you, are you thinking what David Bowie's massaging me? No, you see, that's it. I am constantly aware that I'm in a film. I'm constantly aware that I'm... And though I know lots of these people... You're constantly aware that this is so unreal. I can't get past the fan filter with a lot of these people, even though I'm friends of theirs. You know? Oh, that's a very interesting... Yeah, I, I know we, we will wrap up. I don't want to take too much of your time. But because actually I'm kind of a bit overwhelmed to be quite honest because there's so much and you've been taught you've, you've done so many interviews and so so many similar questions have been asked of you but that fan filter thing um um yeah would would Bowie be one of those would Bowie would have been one of those people that you couldn't get past the fan filter to an extent or to an extent yeah. is right I mean he you know was such 
<laughs> an amazing yeah. uh, musician writer. Like, you know, every single one of the rats, you know, oh, look, forget the rats, every single one, you know, every album that came out, you go, you know, what's he doing? How do you get to this, you know? And um, it's a very important uh, thing you're saying. Um, the, 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 to write a great song, like, it's, it's well, it, well, if you're not incredibly talented, it's very difficult. Yeah, I mean, but do, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, he they, made they, the they, weather, this, though. You know, this is, he made the weather. I mean, like, he made the rock and roll weather for, a, for, a, yeah. a, for the 70s. Him and, I guess, you know, then the Pistols and people like that, but definitely Bowie. And, uh, but I got to see him very early. I hitchhiked to Holland to try and find gigs for the Rats. And um, I stopped off in London, got a gig at the Hope and Anchor, which was the big uh, pub gig at the time. So that was the first one. And then I was going to Holland to try and get gigs for the band, the first gigs out of Ireland. But I went to Brussels first to see the Black and White Tour, Bowie's Black and White Tour, which was him doing Station to Station, the return of the Thin White Tube. That was 76, I guess. And he, he was amazing. But I blagged backstage. And I and I sat in the corner of, you know, the, how I got there, uh, you know, because he was huge at that point. And I sat there and I had a cassette of the rats and some demos that I played to DJs and stuff. And he said, who are you? You know, who are you? Dave, you know, Cockney Dave, he was being at that moment. Sometimes he was other Dave's, you know, he mm. posh Dave or something. I said, oh, I said, I'm, 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 I'm in a band in Ireland. He goes, oh, yeah, what are you called? And I said, the Boomtown Rats. He said, okay. He said, what do you do? And I said, kind of sped up R&B. He said, oh, man, I did R&B for years. He <laughs> said, I couldn't get anywhere. I said, hold on, I'm, you know, hold on. I'm just, I've just seen the greatest show I've ever seen. <laughs> and, and I'm, you know, hold on. And all these things, Rebel, Rebel is going to you know, blasting in my head. And he's going, he goes, yeah, what do you play? I said, I'm the singer. He goes, you look like a singer. I said, yeah, like, do I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, but it's amazing. You remember the exact conversation. I remember it. And this is 1976, and we're now in what year are we? 2020. Yeah. How long ago? But was I, that? I go, so I got him to sign the Rats um, cassette thing, and he said, he said, "What do you want me to sign your own record?" And I said, he said, "Yeah." He said, "You cheeky fucker." He said, "You know, like he said, but laughing." And during the whole band aid, I mean, I went to the Blitz Club when you know the new romantic stuff was happening because, you know, I like finding out what's going on and uh, I went down with him and I went to a football match with him in a pop. how mega is that it, that is a very mega yes and uh, did, when you met him subsequently after that meeting did you say to him I met you once did you say that to him no no I didn't because you know the way it, like it's it's so significant for you but it wouldn't have it, yeah you know I, I didn't say that and uh, so Look, were we friends? No, no, not friends. But you know, we, we got on well. We'd go out for a dinner. We'd mm. go out to a thing, um, and during the whole band aid live aid thing, he was. He couldn't do enough. He'd call and say, "Do you want me? Do you need?" Okay, anything? brilliant. You know, yeah. Hello, you know, of yeah, course. Yeah. So uh, he was cool, but even even then. When we'd meet at a gig and he'd say, hey, Bob, how are you? And like, you know, hugs and all that. It was still David Bowie's there, even though yeah. we could maybe go for a drink or a meal afterwards. You can't get past it. Was and he was he, obviously he's aware of his David Bowie-ness and how that affects I other think, people. I, I think or did he just not give I a shit about it? He probably had it with, you know, loads of other people. Everyone does, you know. And then there's other people where you don't have it. But it's the guys that you 
mm. respond to. Mm. I think that 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 happens. And then going back to the point about your point about it seemed to be that things could happen. Well, yes, and the resonance of Live Aid is that it worked almost, well, not almost, it did work entirely as was planned, not just the concert, but the amount of money raised and then how that was done with, with the money. And But in effect, what people forget is that it was a 20-year pop from Band Aid Record to 2005 and Live 8, mm. which people don't remember. Mm. But it was... So much bigger, a thousand artists, eight concerts simultaneously, the Pink Floyd reforming, U2 and McCartney doing, it was 20 years ago today, you know, like, and all the other people there. Mm. They forget that, you know. Mm. And uh, Well, the Pink Floyd uh, reforming. Yeah, but even, pretty... even then, but all the new guys on the block were there, and, you know, uh, you know Bill Gates and Brad Pitt and Kofi Annan mm. announcing them, you know, announcing Pete Doherty, mm. you know, and Elton, you know, and stuff like that. People forget it, and so why? Um, but, but it had far bigger impact than Live Aid because it was political. It was to force the most powerful countries and their leaders to do something they didn't want to do, mm. and they did. Mm. So this was finally the boys and girls with guitar writing the policy and getting it done. And that took 20 years. So for most people, what a great concert Live Aid was. But for me, was and is, you know, ongoing. Uh, so I don't see it in the same terms. Okay. And the sadness of today, which is kind of the point you were making, is that you're not going to get that cooperation. You're not going to get the compromise. Cynicism? You're not. No, no, no. That we've all retreated back into a sort of... Uh, barbarism of politics, you know, um, you know, the collapse of the world financial system in 2008, which sent tens of millions to their deaths, homelessness, loss of families, loss of jobs, has never been really reconciled. And no one, save in Ireland, actually has gone to jail. You know, three people, I think, went to jail. And, you know, the people who uh, masterminded this great collapse, um, are in power. There's no question. We've elected fools. And it goes on, and we're, we're going to do the same thing again. And the politics of the UK, which we are now, are a direct result with that. The Labour Party is a direct result uh, of the, um, the crash, and the Conservative Party are a direct result of the migration that happened as a result of that crash, as people moved throughout the world, and the wars that were resultant upon the crash, mm -hmm. and people moved to escape them. So th that's what's going on now. And indeed, in America, it's the same argument about migration and saving jobs and all this. So that, that's the wash we're living in now. And that, um, that is very hard, then, to get people to talk about the singular problem that is at the root of this, which is poverty. And so looking at that picture there of Theresa and myself, that's what we were talking about then and now. But then it was possible to maybe just just twitch the needle a little. Now, no one wants to talk about it. What is amazing also is, uh, uh, no different to, to, you know, we keep on working, yeah. we're having goals, we're achieving new things. You've come up with a new, you've uh, released a new album today, yeah. actually. You released a single, single today. Single today, yeah. What's the album called? Citizens of Boomtown. Right. And, well, I mean, how long did it take you to make it? Uh, in truth, it didn't take that long, but it took forever because um, 
there's the endless twiddling and endless mixes. But if you were to say, is is the finished thing any different to say two years ago? No. No, it's not. You know, it's us noodling around, getting a record contract, them getting their heads around what it is and how to do it. So, um, noodling. Would you like to be? Do you think you're? When you say noodling around, do you wish you were a better musician than? Well, do you wish you were a better musician yeah, than you are? Of course. Of course. Yeah, I mean, like you see, I mean, did you did you we, ever we've think just about finished? A, they've just finished a two-hour film on the band. And Dave Stewart makes the interesting observation that it's it didn't make the cut, but I saw the observation. So the problem with Bob is that he writes these complex melodies and harmonies that you know would fit Freddie Mercury could sing them. He said, but Bob can't. So you know he has to. He has to limit himself, like you know, to the way he does it, and so they they become sort of you know Geldof rat songs the rats power these things through they're not really playable by other bands it just works that way in a so group. yeah so how do so speaking of how you how do you write do you, do you sit down with a guitar and that's it yeah. work it out i don't really work it out like i'll come with the car and go that's good what's that and then i'll sing any old stuff mm. and try and let well it's it. hardly any old stuff like no but you know very... you sing it until suddenly oh, it's right. coherent and or else like you know i've got literally you know like you yeah. probably endless boxes of notebooks which i think are stuff i'll use in songs but actually i never go back and look at them you know i, I and uh, and and you know i'd say oh okay that line okay it's just too bothersome i'll just write afresh and um and and then i mean this is tiresome but sometimes the words you write they're good for the song, but when I stand there at the mic, they're clunky, they're clumsy, they're not going with the with the groove at all. So then I'll just, you know, I'll say, okay, roll it again, and I'll close my eyes, and let's see what happens. And pretty often your subconscious will hurtle things into the foreconscious, which scrambles to grab the, the, the sound and articulate it. And, you know, so this process of shocking your brain into something <laughs> fresh, That's you know, right. sometimes works. And you can either amalgamate the two things you've done or just go from scratch. So there's a song that uh, Pete and I, well, everyone <coughs> kind of likes. It's called Here's a Postcard. And um, I was just, you know, it's a very simple little thing. And, uh, you know, uh, Pete said, you know, well, you know, what's the melody? What's it about? And I said, well, I don't, I haven't got anything. I just think there's something going on here. Just, just bear with me. And he said, well, give me something to work with. So uh, I just stood up at the microphone and it turned out I. It was maybe a hot day, and we were up in his place in Acton, and I just did. Um, I lit it. I just said, here she comes walking down the street. Who, what, where, when, why, how, follows. <laughs> but I'm not thinking that because I've got maybe two beats for the next line, you know, and my mind is just going, that, 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 just throwing. And, you know, it's kind of, it's just summer's day and I walk down a street and uh, there's this girl and then there's these people and that's, that's, and I call it, here's a postcard. It's just a postcard from a summer's day, you know, that's all it is. Um, but it feels exactly like that uh, to me, right? you know. And then the single is I was down at the end of the King's Road. Is that Monster Monkeys? Monster Monkeys is you did that really cool video for. Yeah. And Thank uh, you, Bob. 
it is and I appreciate the amount of money you gave me it was it was it was embarrassing it's all coming (laughs) you know that's why you're doing this podcast you you were so privileged (laughs) to to, to, to actually be able to do it I Um, was very privileged I actually was no I think you're amazing so there you go um, Monster Monkeys is um, again like where do you start I think it's a fucking brilliant song that's a good one I I love that one that's my that's I I think it's like it is it's 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 like an animal it's got all this nibbly, bibbly bits. Yeah. It's, it's fucking brilliant. Well, that's that's a classic. I love it. Pete and I yeah. both did that. Yeah. Like you couldn't say where one starts and one yeah. begins, but um, uh, yeah, I you know stuff just you know you, I, I'm not sure what the hell it is you know, but it's it's definitely something. And when I hear it, there's an absolute response from somewhere inside me, and I go, "That's it." It's it's such a good groove that one. And uh, Trash Glam, the the, um, the 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 single we got now, I was down and down at the end of the King's Road. You know that squiggle, that S bend, where it becomes the world's end. Yeah. No, uh, actually. Okay, anyway. so if you go right down the end of the King's Road, there's yeah. an S bend where it still is the King's Road, but it's called the World's End, mm. and uh, that's where that part of the world has always been a place where people have made a theatre of the self. So whether it was the Bohemians of the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century, Oscar Wilde would be classic. Um, Lloyd Johnson had his shop there, Vivian Westwood. That's where the pistol started. Johnson's were, uh, you know, where the, the class sort of got a lot of their clothes. Uh, the Rolling Stones all lived there when they started, you know. So that's that part of the world. But there's three charity shops there. And I noodle around there looking for cool shirts. And I was in there one Saturday and this 15, 16-year-old girl was in there talking to her mate who worked behind the counter. And she was from the blocks just down the road, I guess. But she looked, again, just fantastic. Like, yes, yeah. Like, like nobody else. She wasn't beautiful, but she was. She was sort of like this sequent tramp. This I know what you mean. Sometimes they get the clothing, the fashion, they can get it so perfect yeah. and you do and you want to look i mean as from an aesthetic rather than a pervy kind yeah, of yeah you just want to see yeah, yeah. she was a living glitter ball you yeah know? right right and, uh, so cool so, so uh i just you know was heard they were moaning about it being saturday and like you know you know nothing to do classic you know mm. so you know I, I thought she she should be a song you know and she is so like that's why i said oh, another, another nice. shit saturday night you know and once you're there once you're in her head yeah you're off you know and so i wrote a tune back in the day like she's so 20th century you know she's so 1970s so that, yeah. that's that's her now um, Bob, can I just say uh, thanks for doing this? Thanks for inviting me into your home, incredibly beautiful home, and uh, the best of luck with the new album. Thank you, Bob Gelder. Thank you.